justice, international justice, as its own temple. You know? It's very slow. But sooner or later, we will get there. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode three of the podcast Antonio Cassese, The Stubborn Sparrow. My name is Salvatore Zappala, and I teach international law at the University of Catania. I'm here today with my friend and colleague, Giulia Pinzauti. Hello, Salvatore. Hello to our listeners. I'm Giulia Pinzauti. I'm an assistant professor of public international law at Leiden University. Very happy to be here today. In this podcast series, as uh, those who have listened to the previous episodes would know, uh, we revisit some of the major contribution of Antonio Nino Cassese for all his friends and colleagues as a practitioner uh, in international law over a long period of time, three decades, in uh, different capacities working with international institutions, both at the UN level and at regional European level. And we will do so in uh, the way we think we would have liked the most, trying to bring out some critical analysis of the work that was done by Nino and by the institutions in which he worked. In this episode, we talk about Nino's role as member and president of the Committee for the Prevention of Torture of the Council of Europe. The Council of Europe is an international organization comprising 47 member states that was established to promote human rights and the rule of law in Europe. The committee is a supervisory body created by the European Convention for the Prevention of Torture and Inhuman or Degrading Treatment or Punishment. The committee consists of independent, impartial experts, such as lawyers, medical doctors, and specialists in prison or police matters. And its most distinctive feature is that it organizes uh, inspections in member states in order to assess the treatment of persons in the places of uh, detention. The CPT became operational in November 1989, and Nino was elected, as Julia said, a member of the committee and uh, a president of the committee, the first president of this committee, a role which he held until 1993. The committee's work resulted in the consolidation of a methodology based on inspections for addressing the prevention of torture and inhuman or degrading treatment or punishment. This working method was really an inspiration for Nino as he took the next steps in his career, for instance, as a chairman of the Commission of Inquiry on Darfur, but also as president of the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia. Indeed, for instance, during inspections, Nino would ask his colleagues to lock him up in a detention cell so that he could check for himself the conditions of detention. Let's hear it directly from him, dictating the report of an inspection to his secretary. Then the other area is the segregation, um, and this is where the dungeons uh, or segregation cells um, are to be found. Each cell is 2.90 by 2.20, and is uh, the brackets. The height is 2.74 uh, brackets, full top. There, there are no windows, no light, no bed, um, only one dirty blanket in one of them, and. Um, and the other one, there is a strong smell of urine, and um, and whereas in the uh, cell with the blanket, uh, um, um, I could uh, fi I could find uh, big marks of blood on one uh, wall. Um, it, it should be a new paragraph. It should be uh, underlined that this uh, in these cells, uh, um, 
there is complete darkness if one um, closes the door. Um, and there is, in, the, in the door there is uh, a, a peephole which can be opened, uh, but uh, we 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 found it um, uh, we found it uh, closed. Um, and then in, in the uh, above the door there is a small round uh, uh, aperture or hole uh, hole. Uh, through which some uh, little uh, little air can uh, come in, and uh, but no light, or almost no light at all. Uh, new paragraph. I asked my colleagues to to lock me in, and uh, I realized that in both cells, um, once you one uh, once one is locked in, it it is uh, one he is in complete darkness. Now, if we fast forward to when Nino was president of the Yugoslavia Tribunal, listen to what he did while visiting the UN detention unit through an account narrated by John Jones, who was his legal officer at the Yugoslavia Tribunal and sadly passed away a few years ago. As the first president of the ICTY, Nino was passionate about all and any injustice. And perhaps a little-known fact is that we once had a mini-trial at the UN detention unit uh, because Dusko Tadic, the ICTY's first indictee, uh, claimed that a prison guard had kicked his cell door shut, thereby knocking him uh, in the head. And we conducted a reenactment with Nino playing the role of Dusko Tadic uh, and me playing the role of the prison guard. And I, I, I delivered a feeble kick to the door to see if it was possible to cause injury by kicking it closed. And the heavy metal door barely moved. Uh, no, 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 Nino said. No, do it properly. So I gave the door an almighty kick and it slammed shut with a sickening thud. And I raced to the door to see if I had knocked Nino out cold. Um, but, but fortunately, he was unhurt, and his head came round the, the door, and he said, so it is possible, and nodding thoughtfully, uh, just as Sherlock Holmes might have said to a, a blundering Dr. Watson. Um, the guard was subsequently found responsible of abuse. Uh, Nino, former president of the European Committee uh, for the Prevention of Torture, was not one to tolerate uh, any mistreatment of those in custody. Very moving to hear to John, a good friend and colleague, and uh, uh, many memories come back. But to speak today with us about Nino's role within the Committee for the Prevention of Torture and more broadly uh, to, uh, on his views on how international monitoring can contribute to strengthening the protection of human dignity, we are very pleased to have with us another Antonio, a great expert and activist in the area of human rights, if I may say so, Antonio Marchesi, Professor of International Law at the University of Teramo and former President of Amnesty International Italy. And I should add, former also PhD student of Nino, I believe. Welcome, Antonio. Thank you. Thank you very much. Hello, Antonio. Welcome to our podcast. At the time when Nino was elected a member and president of the Committee for the Prevention of Torture, what were you up to and how did your paths cross? Well, in fact, uh, it, it's, it's a funny story. We met in Strasbourg for the first time. I had graduated a couple of years earlier and had spent about a year in Amnesty International's legal office in, in London. And I was sort of gradually finding my way back to Italy. I, I was actually having lunch in Strasbourg with, uh, with a former colleague from Amnesty International, uh, Menno Kaminga, a Dutch lawyer. And I was telling him about my aspiration to become a PhD student. And he said, why don't you talk to Nino Cassese? And I said, I, I don't know Nino Cassese. And he said, well, he's sitting right there on the other side of the room. And uh, so I, I was quite bold. And I went and uh, a bit intrusive because Nino was, uh, was a well-known 
lawyer and well-known scholar, and he was quietly having his meal by himself. And I said, look, my name is Antonio Marchesi. I would like to, to meet you. And we had a long conversation. He was very, very nice. We had coffee together. We spoke about torture. And uh, eventually, about six or eight months later, I was his, uh, his PhD student in, uh, in Fiesole, in the University Institute in Fiesole. So that was the story of our first meeting. So at the European University Institute, uh, you were already uh, working in a way with Nino. You were his uh, supervisee for your PhD. And probably in, also in those years, uh, those were the years of Nino uh, running for the, for the committee. Were you there when he was uh, starting his role as a member and president of the Committee on the Prevention of Torture? Yes, in fact, I was, because I was there from 1987 to 1991. Yes, I remember when he was elected, uh, and uh, I remember Nino telling us about his first, his first meetings with the committee and, and, and so on. What was your perception, Antonio, of the, the impression Nino had on the committee? Did he really... Uh, see the committee as something that could uh, start off flying? Because I think that was the very beginning of the committee, as we said. Yes, well, well, he was, uh, he was very excited about it. He was enthusiastic, and that was, I mean, part of his character, of his nature also. Uh, he saw it uh, as, as a significant innovation in the way human rights monitoring took place, because, after all, it was a, a limitation of state powers, especially the, the power, I would call it the power not to allow people to see what happens inside places which are sort of traditionally hidden from sight. So the idea that you could uh, force states to be more transparent was, uh, was something very important in the whole sort of conception of the, of the European Committee for the Prevention of Torture, looking into places which are usually hidden from sight and where problems are not really addressed, but simply set aside. And also, Nino was aware of the fact that states sometimes accept, maybe unwittingly, to introduce things that then have a long-term effect that goes beyond what they had expected. So he was very interested in, um, let's call it human rights strategy and ways of improving effective monitoring. To follow up on what you just said, Nino wrote that the creation of the committee was a turning point in the international fight for human dignity. What do you think about this statement? Do you agree with it? And can you explain perhaps what's really so special about this committee? Well, yes, it was, it was special. And, uh, and per perhaps the fact that it was special is confirmed by the fact that it was not possible at the time to achieve the same result at the universal level. There was an attempt to, to create something similar in the United Nations, which was not successful, but the European Committee turned out to be sort of a precedent that then allowed the United Nations to adopt a similar system under, under the, the optional protocol to the Convention Against Torture. So there was a lot of, of, of quite a struggle, quite a resistance to create something, something like the European Committee. And this sort of confirms the fact that uh, it was far-reaching. And, and the European Committee has, uh, has uh, very significant powers. And I mean, the, on, on the other 
uh, on the other side, it uh, at least formally, it, it has to act uh, in a way which is confidential. But it does have very far-reaching powers, more than any other body that monitors human rights at the international level. Do you think, Antonio, that this confidentiality that, uh, in a way, inspires the, the relationship with the, with the member states is an aspect which uh, plays uh, uh, in the, the direction of strengthening the chances for uh, increasing respect for the rights of persons in detention? Or is it a, a weakness in the system? Well, let me say that, uh, as you mentioned before, I'm a, a, a sort of long-term Amnesty International activist, so I don't particularly like uh, human rights diplomacy, which is uh, which is done in uh, closed clo with closed doors and uh, quietly. I, I don't always sort of trust that it, it things are actually being being done if they're not open to public scrutiny. But at the same time, it was uh, it was a necessary cost that needed to be paid. And as, as I mentioned before, sometimes things evolve in ways that states don't imagine. And uh, the fact that some states gave sort of the good example and said, we are, allow publication of our reports that concern our prisons and led to other states to imitate that example. In the end, uh, it is very few states that don't allow publication of the reports. So that part, sort of the confidentiality, has to a large extent been, been overcome. And Antonio, what was Nino's role in this respect, in sort of prompting states to publish reports which were actually meant to be confidential if we look at their actual obligations under the convention? I don't exactly know what conversations he had with government authorities to sort of induce them and encourage them to publish the reports. But Nino was a very good diplomat, which is a quality which was also necessary for the president of the European Committee. Uh, he was a good uh, investigator when he went on visits, but then he also had to persuade government authorities to to sort of follow up on the recommendations that the committee that the committee made. So these two qualities are both necessary for a member of the European Committee for the Prevention of Torture, especially for, for the president. And I believe that Nino had both these qualities to persuade governments and but also to make effective sort of inspections in which nothing can be uh, sort of uh, hidden from from the view of uh, of the members of the committee. So the committee works clearly also as an essentially preventive role. It does not investigate allegations of torture, nor does it make findings in this respect. No, no, that is, that is the role of, uh, of the European Court of Human Rights. The European Committee is not about establishing whether the European Convention has been violated. But uh, some, sometimes I've read that uh, it is not about definitions of torture, Uh, which is not entirely correct, I believe, because there must be a very thorough understanding, at least of the notions of torture and inhuman and degrading treatment or punishment uh, in, uh, in, in contemporary state practice in order to be a good member of the European Committee for the Prevention of Torture. You have to know what you're looking for. And this is especially so in, in the contemporary world where torture is not necessarily about physical harm, 
but it's about destroying people's personality. It is much more sophisticated than it was centuries or even decades ago. And therefore, you need a thorough understanding, if not of the legal definition, at least of the, of the notion of torture and cruel and inhuman and degrading treatment. Antonio, I want to go back to the question of confidentiality and publicity. When a state doesn't comply with the committee's recommendations, the committee can make a follow-up visit to the same state and eventually make a public statement. Nino was very confident uh, on the role that public opinion and public shaming can have to persuade states to comply with their international obligations. Uh, do you think that public shaming is an effective way to induce compliance with human rights norms? Uh, on the whole, yes, there are um, sort of some basic conditions, requirements for public shaming to be effective. And that is uh, government authorities must be willing and able to cooperate, at least to a certain extent. They must be countries uh, uh, that could sort of suffer from a negative uh, publicity concerning their human rights record. In some situations, some situations go beyond these, the situation of violations which are so systematic and so grave, which are carried out by an authoritarian government or situations in which institutions have collapsed or situations in which uh, uh, there is uh, an ongoing war and the government does not control territory. These are more extreme situations in which any form of monitoring, even the very effective form of monitoring that's carried out by the European Committee, is probably not enough. Then you need other approaches. You need international criminal justice, for example. In linking these reflections, uh, Antonio, to, to, to what you were saying uh, earlier also about uh, the more general and preventive role of, of the committee, if I understand well, you would conclude the fact that the Committee on the Prevention of Torture does not make findings of torture is not per se a limit of the work of the committee. No, because someone else does. Uh, I mean, if the European Court did not exist, then obviously this would raise questions. But the overall system of the Council of Europe, which includes both elements, allows the European Committee to play its role while the European Court of Human Rights plays another role. So, I mean, they're complementary in a way, and as are NGOs like Amnesty International, which are very vocal. So it's, it's a combination of different approaches that can lead to the actual improvement of the human rights situation in, in states. I think Nino was very aware of this. Nino was, what I actually found congenial and attractive about Nino was that he understood international law as a way of improving a state of affairs and improving people's lives. This obviously applies especially to those areas of international law that he was more directly involved with as a practitioner that is human rights, international criminal justice, probably less so in respect to the part of international law that deals with international relations proper. Antonio, so far we've talked about the Committee for the Prevention of Torture, but actually this is a shorthand for Committee for the Prevention of Torture and Inhuman or Degrading Treatment or Punishment. Can you maybe explain for our listeners what is the difference between these notions in short? Yes, uh, I will try to. It's not easy. 
both torture and inhuman treatment and degrading treatment are violations uh, of Article 3 of the European Convention and more generally of the right to physical and mental integrity. There are differences, however. Torture is the most sort of extreme form of violation of this, uh, of this right. Inhuman treatment uh, is less, uh, it, it can be the result of non-intentional action by government actors, including, for example, very sort of uh, bad prison conditions. While usually prison conditions in themselves, even if they're very bad prison conditions, do not amount to torture. Degrading treatment is about humiliation and debasement, usually, of, of, of the victim. I must say there's a, there's a written, detailed definition uh, of torture in the United Nations Convention Against Torture. It's almost a sort of codification of the notion of torture under general international law. The inhuman treatment and degrading treatment do not have uh, specific formal legal definitions, but you can, uh, you can understand what is meant reading the very rich jurisprudence case law of the European Convention. But once again, the distinction and, and the establishing whether a particular situation falls within one or the other category is not a task of the European Committee for the Prevention of Torture, which may be concerned in many cases with situations which don't fall within any of these categories, but simply are situations of risk gray areas and and their recommendations to governments are to pers- aimed at persuading them to improve the overall situation so that none of these occur in the future broadly speaking uh, i think nino was uh, very positive overall about the committees and the impact of the committee's work on uh, an increased and threatened protection for human dignity and human rights of uh, persons in detention. Did you ever have any exchanges with him on how the committee could be strengthened or uh, what could be done? And if you look at the committee over the years, have you seen a positive evolution in the work of the committee? Well, the committee has, um, over the years, during Nino's years, but also more recently, for example, under the chairmanship of Mauro Palma, who was, uh, in a sense, sort of Nino's uh, successor, although not immediately after Nino's, uh, Nino's term of office as a chair of the European Committee Against Torture, they have developed standards, including substantive standards, that is, rules uh, The the, the European Committee standards uh, are a guideline for um, many operators, uh, but also for other institutions, including the European Court of Human Rights. Uh, So they've, they've, uh, they've developed a lot of knowledge and made it public about what happens in those places, which, as I mentioned before, are traditionally hidden from public view. And also the methodology has been, has improved, has developed a lot. I think probably at the beginning, it was a lot about being creative. And that was something that Nino was good at. But more recently, it's about hard, a lot of hard work and preparing for the visits in studying all the precedents, in, uh, in learning the techniques from the, the senior members of the committee. So it's less about being creative because the system has been uh, is now in place uh, and it is in principle quite effective. 
As we move towards the end of this episode, Antonio, is there an anecdote or perhaps a memory of Nino that you'd like to share with us? Well, there are quite a few, actually, because uh, I, I spent three years as his student in Fiesole. And although he was busy with the Council of Europe, he was often in, uh, in the university. Uh, as we've been encouraged to say something critical about Nino, and I haven't done so yet, there is one thing he was very bad at, and that was parking, parking his car which is not as important as the other things we've been discussing so far. But I remember we used to uh, wait for him to arrive to, to Fiesole from, from Florence, and uh, sometimes with Andrew Clapham also, who was, uh, uh, who was at, at uh, the Institute at the same time. We would sort of sit in the library and from the window uh, sort of bet on how long it would take him to park his tiny Fiat uh, Cinquecento in, in an enormous space, which was available. And, uh, and we, would, uh, we would joke about this. So that is the anecdote. It has nothing to do with international law, but uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's something that Nino was definitely not good at. Thank you very much for sharing this funny memory of Nino with us. Nino was a man of many talents, but I think we all agree that driving and parking were not one of them. Indeed, indeed, he, he was he was a, a a man of action, but probably it, the best of his action was certainly not in the in the driving sphere. Yes, I hope that uh, I hope that when he became uh, president of uh, the Yugoslav Tribunal or the Lebanon Tribunal, they had given him a, a, a chauffeur and a car and something that would prevent him from 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 driving himself. And in the Netherlands, as you know, driving is not so popular more it's more popular to ride your bike and Dino actually was very good in riding his bike uh, in his red scarf uh, I, I think that uh, to explain in a way the, the, the reasons uh, and to share in a way what the, the feeling was uh, for, uh, for Nino that prompted him to take part in the committee's work and more generally to take an active part an active role in the protection of human rights we have chosen an excerpt from Human Rights in a Changing World, a book that Nino published in 1990. Yes, in this excerpt, Nino quotes a passage from The Trial by Franz Kafka, an author that was very dear to him. Reading this excerpt is Professor Andrew Clapham that Antonio already mentioned, who contributed to the publication of Human Rights in a Changing World and who will also be a guest in our next episode. Remember the last scene in The Trial? a novel that holds the key to our existence, when Kay, awaiting trial, is dragged at night by two representatives of the law to a lonely stone quarry. Before he's stabbed in the back for unknown crimes, a window in the house opposite is thrown open, like a flicker as of a light going up, and a figure appears and spreads its arms wide. Who was it? The man who is about to be killed wonders? A friend? A good man? Someone who sympathised? Someone who wanted to help? Was it one person only, or were they all there? Was help at hand? Perhaps it's enough for one about to die, in a prison, a concentration camp, a mine, a torture chamber, a city destroyed by bombs, a village depressed by drought, to know he does not die alone. The figure in the window is not indifferent. He will at least protest. Not much by way of consolation, but better than dying completely alone and forgotten.
All relevant texts and books uh, mentioned uh, are mentioned in the show notes uh, and uh, our listeners can uh, see them on the website and they can follow us on Twitter and listen to the podcast on various platforms, uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Simplecast. Thank you very much, Antonio. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you, Antonio, for being with us today. The next episode of The Stubborn Sparrow will be on human rights and the European Union with Andrew Clapham. Thanks again for sharing your thoughts and your memories of Nino with us. Bye, everyone. Bye-bye, everyone. Bye-bye. Well, replied the sparrow, one does what one can. So like the sparrow, let us do what we can. <laughs>